to Mountain Time Almanac Podcast. I am Michelle Grosick. And I'm Rick Grosick. And today we have Dr. Rhoda Burrows with us again to continue on with the discussion about Food Safety Modernization Act and how that applies to our produce growing and harvesting um, within the our gardens and across the nation as well. Uh, today we're tackling the third section within the manual that is handed out for those attending Produce Safety Alliance grower training courses. We'll kind of continue on and uh, Dr. Barrows, con- um, congratulations on being here. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to joining us today. And um, we're all super busy right now, so it's been a bit of a pause. So um, we're going to be covering uh, Section 3 in the training manual, which is soil amendments. And Dr. Burrells, I'm going to let you take it from here. All right. So Chapter 3 and the FSMA rule are concerned primarily with uh, soil amendments of animal origin. And so, uh, you know, we have other soil amendments that might be uh, green waste or, or cover crops, that sort of thing. But here we're specifically uh, concerned with animal waste uh, because any manure can carry human pathogens. And so some manures are, are more or less likely to do that. And and so we'll go into that a little bit today about which ones we really need to keep an eye on and how we can handle that to reduce the risk. Okay. <clears throat> So we know some animals tend to be uh, reservoirs for certain pathogens. Uh, for example, uh, ruminants uh, tend to carry E. coli, and younger t- cattle tend to shed more of the toxin-producing pathogens, the really bad ones, in their earth than older animals. Not that older animals can't do it, but Interesting. just, uh, just uh, something that they found that you need to keep an extra eye on. Poultry, of course, we think about salmonella and campylobacter is another uh, organism that they can spread. So uh, we tend, tend to watch uh, those in particular. Um, the food safety rule... Um, specifies that any raw manure uh, must be go through a treatment phase and that is your your normal composting uh, process and it's quite detailed in the requirements about reaching a certain temperature must reach at least 131 degrees uh, for for if you're just turning it um, you need to turn it five times over 15 days, and it needs to maintain that minimum temperature for 15 days. And so by that time, uh, the the temperature uh, will have killed off many of the pathogens, and it's a low enough temperature that it can still maintain some of the good bacteria that can help outcompete the bad bacteria. So this is a process that they've tested over time. And, and so if you can follow those 
rules, uh, you're okay to use properly composted manure uh, right on your on your sensitive crops. Um, although we <laughs> always say the safest thing to do with manure composted or not. Well, the safest thing, first of all, is to put it on on a cover crop or a rotational crop and not on vegetables that are going to be consumed raw. Right. Um, so that's always an option. Uh, the second option uh, that is given in the in the FSMA manual is that if growers are following the rules for organic uh, certification with composting, which is uh, that the application has to be incorporated into the soil, and this can be raw manure, at least 90 days before harvest if the edible portion doesn't contact the soil. So we're talking here something like broccoli that's well off off the away from the soil, tomatoes if they're trellised, or if it's if it will contact if the produce will contact the soil, for example, carrots, it needs to be at least 120 days application between application and harvest. Okay. So those are some those are some guidelines. Um, that's not an official rule per se. It's more a permission to use the organic standards until we come up with something more definitive. Okay. So <laughs> so we've talked a little bit before about uh, produce that's going to be typically eaten raw or fr- commonly eaten raw and produce that is typically cooked. So does that change that at all? Um, so if, if it's potatoes, say, and that's right. a root crop, then do I still need to be utilizing the 120 days between? I believe, and Michelle, you know this better than I do, but I believe you do for organic standards. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. as far as the Food Safety Modernization Act, potatoes are totally exempt from that okay. rule okay. because they're going to be cooked. Okay, excellent. And that's what... That's what, or if your carrots are being processed. Yeah, again. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and and that was my understanding of it as well. And um, I was having a conversation with Martin, who is our high school employee that comes out mm-hmm. during the summers and works. And he recently just went through the training with you. And um, I was talking about, you know, I'd like to give those potatoes a little boost, but I can't because they're in the ground. And he said, well, like... Fisma wise, you're not going to eat those raw. <laughs> and right. I was like, oh, wait a minute. There, yeah, there is that little <laughs> loophole with um, Fisma, but for organic standards, I just call it, I just go safe with it anyways. So, right. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Now, if you get into GAP standards, which are sort of a third standard, um, potatoes can fall under GAP standards. And so they uh, don't have specific uh, time frames like that, but they would uh, prefer that you put on treated treated manure. Okay. So treated manure 
is something that's been basically processed, not just composted, but gone through some right. sort of a official treatment. And that is something that that a lot of people uh, have a, have a hard time dealing with in terms of the if you have a manure pile that's hasn't been touched for five years. Um, in the eyes of the FDA, that is still raw manure. Okay. All right. Um, Rick, do you have any questions coming into this at this point? I don't think so. Um, I, I I would add here at Bear Butte Gardens, one of our practices, when we have a, a compost pile and we consider it finished, then the mm-hmm. time of year in which we apply it, one of the things we try to do is apply it in the wintertime when the, the ground is frozen, and mm-hmm. hopefully that leaves enough days between the application of that product and, and when we're planting and harvesting the plants, the vegetables and such. And then also, it kind of helps with compaction of the soil in the garden. It, it doesn't compact the same way. So I was just right. wondering what your thoughts are on that. Is that a good guideline, a good practice, or should we be doing something different? Well, it has some advantages, as you mentioned. Um, the one disadvantage is that you cannot incorporate it. Mm-hmm. Right. And and incorporation is is preferred. Okay. To reduce to reduce risk. So, um, of course, if if you're doing a no-till, that's a whole other issue too. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we are not. We're not to that point yet where we're no-till, um, especially, I mean, we, we do re- definitely reduce tillage from what we used to, and we try to get better with it each year, I guess. It, I'm not I'm not saying that tilling is always the absolute worst thing, but, you know, we try to just kind of preserve the mm-hmm. microbiome, I guess, as much as we can anymore, but we definitely do go in and and work some things up a little bit before always before we we start planting yeah so. i think we're in the category of minimal till <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> so yeah so we are we talk through that every single winter and spring about what we're going to do that year and um yeah we're still we're still trial and erring through weed management mm-hmm. and all of that too so okay okay great thank you one of the issues with with manure handling that some people don't always think about is where your manure pile is in relation to your fields. And so uh, if it's upwind of your fields, uh, it's probably a good idea to throw a big tarp over it. Um, if it's, I've seen compost piles that were at the top of a hill and, and all the produce was below. Mm-hmm. So if you have a heavy rain, uh, you're going to be washing that compost into your into your field. And so you kind of want to pay attention to that. Um, also, if you've got insects that are moving back and forth between your compost and, and your production fields, uh, you know, if you've got heavy flies or something, that might be moving f- back and forth. They can actually carry uh, pathogens. Uh, birds can carry them on their feet or rodents if they're 
uh, some little field mice that are going back and forth between your your field and your compost pile. So those are all kind of things to be aware of and try to minimize that kind of movement as much as you can. Yeah, probably impossible to eliminate, but reduce. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, one more uh, little thing that I was going to throw in is when we apply the uh, finished compost or we have to treat it as if it were raw manure, I guess, for organic standards. <laughs> when we apply that to the gardens with the tractor, then I always need to wash the tractor tires and, and bucket and, and everything. And it, in the wintertime, I, I try not to <laughs> wash the entire tractor because it would freeze everything, but but right. but need to wash it as, as good as you can. And it, certainly if the temperatures are above freezing, we wash the tractor a lot going back yeah. and forth between the two zones within our agricultural area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Uh, one of the largest food safety outbreaks in the U.S. Um, a number of years ago, one of the things that was implicated was coal fruit was transported out to a cattle feeding area. And then the truck comes back now having manure on its tires and (laughs) who knows where else and was parked right outside the processing uh, facility so uh, flies would travel back and forth and and that was one 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 of those minor things you might overlook unless you come with fresh eyes and and say you know where Where's any of this been, and has it been cleaned in between? Yeah, it's really tricky with plan planning your farm layout and designing your farm layout of, of where your gardens yeah. are compared to your compost operation and such. And there, there's a lot that needs to go into that. And, and a lot of times, unless you have the full realm of, of information on, on what the regulations are, you can easily misplan something. So. Right. And with FSMA, almost all of the uh, risk reduction um, principles are more a case of leaving it to the farmer to assess the risk and address the risk rather than prescribing, you know, your, your chicken tractor has to be uh, 50 foot from your produce field, they're they're not going to give you those kinds of numbers, mm. but but they'll leave it more up to you to to think about. You know, can you make a justification that this is safe? So, if a farmer is doing the planning and designing and trying to get their layout going, and they want some assistance or help or consulting and such, what are some ideas that they can reach out for there? Well, there's. There's a number of any number of videos online, um, but if somebody's looking for specific layouts and has specific questions, they are more than welcome to give me a call or an email, and I can help direct them either to other resources or walk them through uh, specific questions. Or um, we're, we're here to help the producers in their process of, of risk reduction. Oh yeah. That's a good answer. 
<laughs> That'll be useful for a lot of farmers out there. <laughs> yeah. Some things that Rick and I have been talking about recently, um, probably should have been talking about them years ago, but is, you know, just having like a quantity of shovels for different purposes. So there's a couple that just stay up at the compost pile. Now they're just, you know, stuck in the compost pile all the time. So that if we want to get a few bucketfuls for some other project we're doing with some container flowers or something like that, we're just using those. And I was just suggesting to him, we should probably just like paint handles, like the green, you know, shovels and, and rakes are the greenhouse and gardens ones and the compost ones get a different color and the, you know, just right, yeah. the, the garage ones get a different color. So that also helps us to identify where the heck did that shovel go? That, <laughs> that, you know, it's like, oh, I saw that yellow handled shovel and it was over, you know, somewhere else and just for putting things back where they belong. But, you know, it just, just those little, some sort of little tricks and, and, and just having enough supplies to kind of spread them about the farm so that we're not trying to double use every, every simple tool that we have and just to have them dedicated to a certain, and same thing with buckets. And of course with harvest containers and that'll be, uh, addressed here, um, I think in a future section, but you have yeah. certain containers that are only for harvesting. You don't do anything else with those. So for for those smaller hand tools and containers, if a farm is in a situation where they need to use the same shovel in a couple of different places, you know, mm-hmm. we always say wash it, but mm-hmm. are there more specifics to washing it? Does it need to be used with Clorox for the wash or anything like that? It, Ideally, should be washed, uh, get the dirt off of it, and then sanitized. And uh, you can use Clorox, you can use Sanidate or one of the hydrogen peroxide uh, sanitizers. Okay. So there's there's kind of two steps there. The first is washing, and then the second is to sanitize. Okay, good to know. And uh, ideally... If you've got workers on your farm, you should have the protocol for that written out, the procedures for that written out, so they know exactly, you know, how long to leave the sand date on or how much soap to put in the water or whatever it might Mm be, Um, even where to find the brush to brush the (laughs) shovel or whatever it is that you're using. Yeah, Um, I suppose you'd need a location on your farm so that you have the drainage of, of that washed material going someplace right. that you intend it to go and not un- an unintended location. <laughs> right. So, yeah, there's a lot of things to think about once you once you start getting into it. And, you know, if someone's just starting out, start with the biggest things in terms of risk. You know, if your, your uh, compost pile is, is right next to your processing area, um, or you get a lot of rain, and and it's it's uh, your chicken tractor is above your garden. You might want to think about building a berm or whatever uh, you might need to do. But uh, it's going to be a process over years of sort of fine tuning. Oh, I like so that. So don't so... don't feel like you have to do everything at once. <laughs> Okay, so identify and focus on your higher risk issues first. I like that. Mm-hmm. 
higher risk and hopefully those that are seem more doable to start with and once you get going you'll get on a get on a run and <laughs> yeah it won't seem quite so so intimidating to to work with right so as i'm glancing at the the section in the book here i see the term the phrase um agricultural tea stated a few times so in my head, I translate that to compost tea, what, you mm-hmm. know, what, uh, say a small farm might consider doing, creating a compost tea out of the the compostable, um, the compost item, the uh, um, finished compost, I guess, that they would have, and then, and then adding water into that and letting that um, percolate for a while, which is probably exactly the issue I'm thinking with this agricultural tea is that you have something at this perfect temperature then with a, within it's, it's wet and probably growing a lot of different bacteria in there and then spreading that onto your crops somehow. So I have always steered clear of that completely. Mm-hmm. I don't do it, but I have mm-hmm. a lot of people ask me all the time, well, right. do you make yeah. compost tea? And I say, no, I do not. I don't think my <laughs> organic... The inspector would appreciate that <laughs> whatsoever if they saw that. <laughs> so, it, yeah. agricultural tea is allowed under under FISMA rules, with some caveats. One, you make it in a sterilized container. Okay. So you're you're going to come through and and uh, or sanitized. I mean, um, so you make it first of all with potable water. Mm-hmm. Can't be water out of your ditch or <laughs> anywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in a in a sanitized container, it needs to be done from officially finished compost. So that means it met the standard of 131 degrees for 15 days. And there are a few other kinds of composting that are allowed that. Um, if anybody has questions about that, uh, they can they can give me a call and and we can go into that a little bit. It has to be scientifically verified that it's that it's reducing the pathogens. Okay. Uh, so so, and then the the last thing is that you cannot add any nutrients. So a lot of compost tea. Uh, people add, say, molasses. And the reason for that is those added nutrients are what can really feed bacteria like E. coli and, or other pathogens. Okay. Wow. So just touching on the uh, aspect of officially completed compost versus... <laughs> The terminology of raw manure. So on our farm here, we strive to to complete the compost by all the regulations and the temperature, the days, the turning, the aerobic process, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But we still treat it as if it were raw manure mm-hmm. because it's very difficult to truly achieve organic certified compost. Mm-hmm. So right. I just kind of yeah. want to draw that distinction. So if if the the tea requires truly finished compost, that would be very difficult to 
achieve. Yeah, for an for a certified producer, an organic certified producer, right. and that's kind of I think where you're drawing the line here is that um, our neighbors might do it and do a great job with it, but I think we need and they're not certified, but I think we need to be very careful of that and probably steer clear of it for the most part of doing any tea sort of application right. to our yeah products. I just kind of wanted to to mm-hmm. draw out that distinction there a little bit more and just a note if you do on farm composting and you're aiming to have it uh, certified as as you know uh, finished compost uh, you do have to re- keep records the entire time on temperature the time it was there how many when you turned it and that sort of thing and those records are required by FSMA yes okay okay so now you can also get compost from a third party Mm. and uh, if they say it's finished, then you need to get verification that they use, quote, a scientifically validated and and monitored process. Okay. Another option. Good. So in this section, um, and, and you st- stated at the beginning that we're talking about basically animal manures and that sort of thing. Um for the soil amendments, but there is a section about human waste and biosolids. Right. Um, so what are biosolids? Biosolids are basically sewage that's been treated according to the EPA, uh, sewage treatment process. Okay. So it's not something you'd do in your backyard. (laughs) No composting toilets. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. I was, because I was reading through here and and there's not really specifically, you see biosolids in, in bold a few times, but it doesn't right. really specifically say exactly what that is. And I hadn't gone out to Google it yet. So, so, so what did yeah. they say about It might be that? in the notes somewhere in, okay. in those slides, but yeah. Okay. So going into yeah, that human it, waste and biosolids, what do we need to know about that? If it's if it's been treated properly, FSMA allows its use. Um, but your buyer might not be too happy about it, <laughs> right? Uh, because human waste can can contain a lot more than pathogens, all kinds of antibiotics and medicines and. <laughs> plastics and <laughs> mm-hmm. all those good things that our bodies carry. <laughs> yeah. And organic certification standards disallow any kind of product in this category. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think probably most gap certifiers wouldn't be too happy with it either. Right. Yeah. So then what about, um, I, uh, in the spring when I'm starting seeds, I have a recipe that I follow that, uh, uses some bone meal in there and blood meal, um, and peat moss and just, it's kind of a, a soil mix recipe and we use a little bit of our garden soil and then also some, um, 
trying to think what else goes in there. Anyways, uh, there's a section here about the non-manure-based soil amendments of animal origin, and that it appears to cover the bone meal, blood meal, feather meal, fish emulsion, that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. I always have to, for, for our organic certification, I need to send in a photo of the bag that I got it from to show that it's, you know, an organic product mm, and right. um, has been processed the appropriate way and all of that. And, mm-hmm. um, but I suppose there are, you know, maybe if you live by a processing facility or something like that, there's probably a way to come by bone meal and blood meal that hasn't been through all that right, around right. here. I'm not familiar with that. So it really isn't an issue. I just go and I buy the official product that I need to get or order it and I have it. But I suppose that there are places that that's available that people would need to be um, probably steer clear of then for FISMA purposes. Right. If if in doubt, treat it as raw manure. Okay. All right. Um, and fish meal is kind of an interesting one because that may be cold processed, which would not be a heat treatment, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so in that case, it would fall under raw manure. Whereas if it's heat processed, it's okay. Oh. So, okay. So and the. The store may not be able to tell you. You may have to go to the manufacturer to find out. <laughs> Interesting. And I bet living next to the plant that heat processes blood meal and fish meal is would just be. <laughs> Hopefully that's in the industrial area of the community and bone meal probably too. I hadn't really thought through that before, but just opening a bag of those is like, oh yeah, there it is. Right. I, I smell that. <laughs> One of the areas that's still kind of in review uh, by the FDA is is vermicomposting or oh, yeah. worm, worm castings. And I think there's at least some good scientific evidence that that reduces pathogens, but uh, the FDA is pretty, stick, pretty much a stickler on having a good amount of evidence from you know, multiple studies before they, before they allow something. Mm-hmm. So if you have those studies or can find them, you, know, you can appeal to the FDA and say, you know, this is our process and th- these are our results. Um, so there is, there is an allowance for that kind of process. Okay. All right. That's good. We have a friend that, that, uh, pre- What's the right produces? I guess vermicompost. He has the worm set up and all of that mm-hmm. in his garage or somewhere, and does a fine job with it. And I get some quantities of it to sell through our farm stand to um, other people that want to utilize it. But we've never, never, you know, it's just one of those mm-hmm. one more thing. Not to, I don't I cho- right. choose not to raise any more red flags than I need to with our organic right. garden. So. Um, and, and I was kind of wondering that, like, is that, is it being researched somehow? Are they coming along with that? Because I know years ago they just said, no, absolutely not, not, not under consideration. And, and you know, that at some point, well, they're probably gonna, probably gonna find a way that it, that certain, certain vermicompost could be used. Right. Nice. Well, I think that general topic is, is kind of a hot topic in, with consumers right now, we, we get asked a right. lot of questions about vermicompost and 
Yeah. And a lot of the questions now in South, it, it's, it's increased in the last couple of years because yes. a lot of the cannabis growers yes. are looking for that type of uh -huh. a product. And, right. you know, so then I just say, well, I have a source and I have a <laughs> kind of like doing some sort of a deal here, but, but yeah, I, I can get some in and, and then they'll always say, well, you know, um, is it work well for you? And, you know, that sort of thing. I was like, well, I can't speak to that because we don't use it in our gardens, but I do know some other people that have used it and, and they've been very happy with it. So, um, and I know that I'm sure they have, uh, the, the grow facilities, that are that are set up probably have a lot of um, red tape that they're going through as well. What they can right. use and and their product has to be processed a certain way too. All right. In our in our training, one of the examples that was discussed one day was heat treated chicken manure pellets. Oh yeah, yes, I yeah, have heard of those. The question was, well, we really have to know how long they were heated and how high. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, <laughs> we have to assume they're raw manure and treat them as such. Wow, I've never thought about that. So there must be kind of a parallel process to composting, but it applies to the pelletization of... Yeah, I, I have yeah. no idea if they're pressed or... Huh, interesting. Or fermented or what they're... <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you looking for more of our content? Go ahead and follow us on social media platforms to get more. Follow us on Facebook at The Farm Stand at Bearview Gardens. Instagram at farmstand underscore Bearview Gardens. Our farm Instagram, Bearview Gardens. And our website, www.bearviewgardens.com. These are the best ways to stay up to date with what we are up to. It always changes, so keep an eye out for more posts and updates. We've got untreated soil amendments. So what are some examples of that? Um, let's see. So raw manure, aged or stacked manure, like Rhoda was saying, five-year-old five pile is still considered an untreated pile. Untreated manure slurries. Hmm. And so I'm thinking that does that apply more to like a feedlot situation where they I would think have so. quantities and then they, I know, do some sort of kind of like a holding, sorry, right, or a dairy or something sure. like that. Okay. Um, untreated manure teas. So we talked about that. Agricultural teas with supplemental mic microbial nutrients and any soil amendment mixed with raw manure. Untreated. Okay. It's kind of all <laughs> makes sense. Mm -hmm. They're all they all can be traced back to manure. <laughs> yes. Yes. What else have we? Anything specific areas that we've missed, Rhoda? Um, I was watching a video that was just put out by the Produce Safety Alliance that is made for your workers to mm -hmm. watch mm -hmm. for worker training. And I haven't gotten all the way through it yet, but uh, there was one very good, vivid example of clothing, mm. um, changing clothing between, you know, working in the in 
a cattle yard or wherever it might be with animal waste. Sure. Um, and and they're putting on their boots in that at that point, and and the boots are just covered with with mud and and uh, uh, amendments of animal origin. <laughs> yes. And uh, so and I was thinking. Boy, he's got that on his hands now in addition to his feet. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so, true. <laughs> to think of clothing has cross-contamination possibility. You know, we talked about that a little bit with with tools and, and containers and so forth. But humans can also be that cross-contamination if we're not careful. So as a little side example of that, um, several years ago, we went on a family trip to New Orleans area and visited a farm called Grodat. Yeah, Grodat, yep, youth farm. And Mm -hmm. and they had very specific policies and and procedures to deal with that. They had lockers for the employees. (laughs) They had a whole collection of rubber over boots in various different sizes and a process to wash them in between use and, and whiteboards up to document different processes and to educate, train the workers who were, um, at-risk youth, mm-hmm. teens and such, mm-hmm. learning this whole process. So that was very interesting. We we really had our eyes opened at that event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they didn't even have, they didn't have livestock there. It was just vegetable production. But when they came on site from, you know, whatever their school activities were or, or other job, that sort of thing, then they would... Yeah, go into this specific area to change out from their street clothes into their gardening clothes. And then all the tools had very specific places to be and they were sanitized. And um, yeah, it was it was it was really a very lovely space to tour. You could just self tour it if you wanted to and just get a little map and walk about and at a distance, you know, you couldn't be right in the gardens, but you could watch them. Um, as they were out harvesting kale and that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, chat with them a little bit if you wanted to. (laughs) So a tangent to that project there um, and that topic, how about agritourism? Mm -hmm. What what do we need to know about this chapter in the the FISMA book regarding agritourism? Oh, it's... Probably most of it is contained in other chapters, including uh, pets and wildlife, uh, okay. whether or not people can can bring their dogs. Um, but there is actually a requirement once you get into, I believe it's into the harvest and post-harvest, that all workers are trained, and that includes actually visitors. So... Um, we actually have a handout on on pick your own uh, food safety and pick your own operations, mm, and yes. it you know, talks about what's required by the rule, um, but also some tips and suggestions for for things like hand washing stations and and those sorts of things. Yeah, the whole the pick your own idea. I love that idea, but I also just completely steer clear of it here. <laughs> just, just yeah. you know, just for so, oh, so many reasons. But, but that one's a big one for me. Is that we all try to be really careful of, 
you know, just the hygiene around when you're, when you're harvesting and weeding and, and all of that. And you get, I don't know, I just feel like you get so many people coming in to pick their own and that sort of thing. It's going to be that much harder to track all of that. And I think the you pick farms or pick your own farms used to be a lot more common. And I'm not sure if the, it maybe it's more in populated areas too. I don't know, but it seems like I see less of them than I used to. And probably part of that is food safety. Well, yeah, we certainly don't have many in South Dakota. <laughs> right. So when we do farm tours here at Bearview Gardens, we, we do a fair amount of, of farm tours. We try to take the uh, tourists through a certain route through our agricultural area and mm-hmm. it, that's kind of carefully planned so they're not too close to the compost pile, not too close to the mm. chicken mm-hmm. coop and, and what they have access to actually come in contact with is is limited. Then we make a loop around and they don't ever backtrack on the same path they walked on prior. Mm. And that's mm-hmm. all an attempt to kind of follow some of these guidelines here of, of not spreading around that animal based, mm-hmm. you know, amendment. So that's yes. thoughtful of you. <laughs> so with, with some of the agritourism uh, training classes that we've been to um, and specifically with FISMA and organic standards, um, I think that word probably needs to get out more on, on some of that stuff about uh, the agritourism of farms, some of the guidelines. Well, uh, with extension, we do a fair number of farm tours with mm-hmm. with commercial producers and and it just suddenly occurred to me this this past year that uh, FISMA requires that there be bathroom facilities for visitors. Mm. Yeah. Ah, yes. <laughs> it's like oh, <laughs> porta bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And well, then that even introduces some some interesting right. uh, planning. Then too. you have the whole, <laughs> the whole where do you place them? Where are the yeah. hand washing facilities exactly. and all that. Yeah, the wind blew it over. Uh, backup plan. <laughs> yes, right. Yes. We have we have definitely discussed that here several times. Of well, our gardens are a bit of a a walk from our restroom that's in well either our house or Mm -hmm. the one that's in our farm stand and Mm -hmm. you know every now and again somebody will say you know maybe we should consider getting a a porta john or something up here and i always go back to gosh i think it was maybe the training we did with you when atina diffley was was at mitchell or somewhere and talking about that the i think it was the truck that would deliver or come and clean out the porta john Every oh. week or so, and it drove right along the edge of the, you know, crop harvest field and that sort of thing. And then, and then, <laughs> um, yeah, and it's like, oh man, I just don't, I, everybody just has to walk. You got to walk. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess it's almost like a limitation on who can come out and work. It's like, if you're having a, if you're having a day when, when you really need to, you're drinking a lot of water and tea. Maybe you just need to work closer to the to the farm stand today because it's a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a you got to plan it. Can't wait too long. So, 
Yeah. Well, and with with our wins, uh, yeah. I was talking to a trainer recently who said, you know, people think that we're just kind of joking or making it up when we say something about a porter potty blown over. <laughs> but she says, I've seen it happen numerous times. Right. <laughs> yeah. I've heard about it many times as well. Yes. Yes. It would not be a would not be a happy day on the farm. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Rhoda, do you, do you know of any other topics that we're missing here? Bullet points on the soil amendment section. I think we've pretty much, uh, covered, um, the areas that we need to. Okay. So I have a question. So what if you kind of know about all these rules and regulations and you're doing the best that you can to adhere to them and you're doing a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. One day there's a big accident of some violation of some of these rules what's what's an appropriate reaction to that what should you be prepared to do if if it happens on your place or someone else's yeah on on, say our own place here okay um that's that's part of the the training is to sort of think about uh worst case scenarios and to have a plan in place for that uh, for example, with porter potty, what do we do if it blows over? <laughs> yeah, that's a good example. Um, so, so always, you know, you can't can't necessarily think of everything that bad that might happen. You have a tornado come through, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, some things you can't plan for, but but uh, um, and then. Uh, at the opposite end of things, one of the very last things we talk about and one of the very last pieces actually of FISMA to be implemented is a traceability uh, mm-hmm. ah, yes. process um, so that that if somebody gets sick, they can trace it back and, and you can see, you know, when that, when that particular uh, – produce was harvested and you know which field or which garden it was harvested from um, so that you could recall anything else that was out of that particular lot so that's that's where FISMA kind of is right now with everyone, everyone from the largest corporations down to any of the smaller ones that might actually fall under FISMA. And most of our growers will not fall under FISMA, but the principles that are outlined in, in FISMA are, are good for just about everybody to pay attention to. <laughs> yeah. So I guess when I think about traceability of something that goes wrong, one of the, the outcomes of that is to mitigate the risk to your entire farm. If you don't have any traceability yes. path at all, any documentation, any, anything in place that you've planned and thought out, and somebody gets sick, maybe you can trace it back to your farm, then that might shut down a large portion of your farm till you fix that problem. But if you have good traceability, maybe it can go only to one garden or one lot or something like that. Right, and, and so that mitigates your risk. It isolates the problem quite a bit more. Right, um, and it also uh, 
helps in, in case you're accused of something that uh, you've got the records to prove, no, this is what we did, not that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, record keeping, I think, is one of the, well, and the inspectors tell us this, that uh, it's one of the most cited areas uh, of, of weakness when they go out and inspect farms is that they're missing records. Uh, yes. uh, so, uh, then there, there are lots of ways to do that. You, know, you took a Tina's class and, you know, she wrote stuff on the whiteboard and then took a photo of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Peggy over at Cedar Creek uh, uses Google Docs on her phone. Mm-hmm. And so there are, there are many, and if you, you know, are Amish and like paper and pencil, you can use paper and pencil. <laughs> yeah. So common theme with, with organic certification or FISMA or GAPS and such, that there's that element to protect the consumer of, of the vegetables or products and such, but also to protect the producer by having yeah. a good audit trail and, and record keeping so that you don't get shut down or, or make somebody sick. Right. Yeah. All right. Excellent information. Well, and you're probably going to be more likely to do it if you know you have to write it down. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is true. That is true. We, I definitely, uh, oh, yeah, I learned over the years that it's always easier just to jot everything down or put it in notes on my phone or whatever the system is each day, every single day, and then I can go back and put that all into a spreadsheet or something later into, you know, more manageable format. But if I try to remember what I did a week ago, it's, it's usually a lost cause to try to do that with when you get into busy seasons. So what, and I always tell people just find the, the method that works best for you, for one person, like you said, that might be a piece of paper on a clipboard or it might be a whiteboard and the whole, I love that idea that Tina had, you know, of, and we do use it sometimes at our place too, of just write it all down, take a picture of it. And then we've got it. And, Mm -hmm. um, or somebody's really handy on their smartphone, then find there's apps that will do it for you that you can quickly put things into, or like I just use my notes, um, little note segment on my phone app and, and just, put loads of stuff in there about where I planted things and when we've harvested and how many pounds and all that kind of stuff to mm-hmm. be able to refer to it later. Everybody has their favorite method. So I've noticed that right. your little uh, leather uh, wrapped notebook there mm-hmm. before that, yeah, you did all this stuff too, but when you have that handy little leather durable notepad there, My journal, yeah. that, that kind of increased some. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, that's something I used to have. I tried to have a notebook for all the various things I did. Well, I could never find the right notebook uh, at the right time. So then you jot it on a piece right. of paper and lose your, your sticky note or whatever. <laughs> and so Rick finally um, invested in a really nice leather covered journal for me that I can keep adding pages to. So you can purge out pages and file them oh, and put right. new pages into it. 
And I every, absolutely every note I need to take goes in there, whether it's about the farm or it's a meeting I go to or whatever, because then I can think, well, what else was I doing that day when I took that right. note? And then I can go through and chronologically find it. And, um, and that helps me a lot and it's durable enough. It can go out, you know, to the, um, wherever I'm going, it can, it can be in a greenhouse or it can be inside and and it looks good, but, but that's what works for me and Mm -hmm. everybody's going to operate differently. And all the the people on the farm, the farm workers here, they, they see that notebook and they know, Oh, Michelle misplaced it. Better she go find Michelle. Better, better get it to Michelle. So <laughs> exactly you know, always true. trying to keep the, those two probably connected. have to be hot orange or, yeah. or fluorescent <laughs> green or something. <laughs> well, my, my cell phone definitely has to be a bright color because I drop that so frequently out of a pocket and, and into a garden that we can we can zero in on it from Rick's phone to approximately where it's at. And then we got to go find the bright orange phone or bright red phone, whichever I have at the moment, because yeah, but yeah, it's, it's all finding your process that works best for you and, and your staff, I guess. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, and putting that into place and then carrying through with it. Yeah. Good information. Definitely. Well, thank you, Rhoda. We appreciate the time You're quite welcome. and uh, we'll, we'll, uh, meet up with you again here soon it looks like the next section is wildlife domesticated animals and land use so that's going to be an interesting one rick gets he and his dogs get into trouble probably at least (laughs) once a week or twice a week about running in in the wrong places and this and that so we try to have a system (laughs) of taking them out somewhere when they first get out of their livestock pens to go be dogs and then they can <laughs> then they can come back and visit later while I'm harvesting stuff or whatever walk by and and say hi to me but yeah <laughs> it's there's just a lot of things on a farm and and uh gardens yeah. I guess to keep track of there so yeah all right well we will be talking with you next time around and enjoy right. enjoy your your summer days oh what a fun discussion <laughs> thank you so much you're welcome